He's like, oh, I should have, should have checked first. Well, hey, uh, in this morning and preparing for this message, uh, my friend, some of you will know him, Chris Price has been really helpful in some of the preparation as I got to some, pick his brain a bit, challenge him, and uh, I've drawn heavily from some material that he's uh, preached on this topic. Marriage, divorce, love are challenging and confusing things. They are. And as one author I read this week put it, they're confusingly connected. And we live in a time of competing and conflicting definitions and views of marriage, divorce, and love. And our views for these are often shaped by screens more than they are by the story of Scripture. Love is understood through the lens often of just romance, self-expression, sexual satisfaction, and personal fulfillment. And if we feel like we don't know how to talk or think about love, divorce is even harder. When someone tells you they're getting divorced, you can feel tongue-tied, unsure what to say. Maybe you say, feel like saying sorry just feels really trite and inappropriate. Maybe saying not all marriages work out. It just feels like not really quite sure how to respond. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is where this passage is situated, Jesus outlines a way of being human that is only possible by coming into contact with him. And what we're looking at today is the third and six examples he gives where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And today's is probably the most challenging. And it speaks to this topic of marriage, divorce, and love. Jesus is revealing what being rightly related to God and others looks like. He is talking about this righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, these religious leaders of their day. For Jesus, he's concerned with a right relatedness with God and others that goes as deep as our hearts, not simply our behavior. And this is why Jesus isn't trying to address sinful actions. He's taking you from murder to contempt, from adultery to lust. He's taking you from the uh, symptom to the cause from bad fruit to this poisonous root. And here in this passage, it seems hard to capture what he's doing because he's painting a different picture, a different approach to divorce and remarriage than what was the norm in the first century and what it is now. So let me read it one more time. It has been said, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we can't understand what divorce, marriage, and love means without a brief like, theology of marriage, and we need to situate Jesus' words within the story of Scripture. Once we do that, then we can begin to understand what Jesus is speaking to in his moment on the Sermon on the Mount. So here are four key truths about marriage that we get from Scripture. The first is that the essential understanding of marriage is a covenant. A covenant. Let me read to you Malachi chapter 2. This is what it says. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Malachi, the prophet in this moment, is saying that marriage is this covenant. And a covenant is a word that many of us will feel like is kind of strange because we don't use it in everyday language. But a covenant is this binding agreement between 
to parties or people, a binding commitment that you're making. And in Scripture, to establish a covenant, a sacrifice of animals was made between uh, both parties, and both parties would walk between the entrails of these animals. And that sounds so foreign to us today. It doesn't make sense to us. But essentially what they were saying is, I would rather die than break my covenant that I'm making with you. I would rather be like these animals than break my covenant with you. And if I do, may I be like them. That's what they were saying through this act. And the Bible actually grounds, like the biblical story grounds all love in God's covenant love. This one scholar I read this week, he, he talks about God's covenant love being marked by three things. To be with us, to be for us, and unto full redemption. Now that last one sounds strange. What it refers to is until we become like Jesus. So God promises to be with us and to be for us until we become like Jesus, until we're fully in the kingdom, until we become people who are holy and loving like he is. That's what God covenants to do for his people. And with marriage, this covenant gets established in a public ceremony before God and other witnesses. And we think of the common vows that are normally said at a wedding, right? I promise to love you, to hold you, to keep you, to cherish you in sickness and in health till death do us part. And this is one of the reasons why you and I, we can't practice for a covenant. It's not the same as cohabitation. Covenant isn't the same as cohabitation. Cohabitation can feel like a trial run, maybe a test to get there. But at the same time, there are these unspoken vows at work in that. That I'll stay with you so long as we make each other happy. As long as the cost of living is kept manageable. As long as these feelings continue. As long as you don't interfere with the personal goals that I have. As long as we're in our 20s. All of this can feel so conditional and insecure, and it's hard to give yourself fully to something like this. That's not practice for covenant. It doesn't work that way. And studies after studies will show that couples that, couples that live together before marriage are statistically more likely to get divorced after marriage. Even recently, it's a little bit of controversy if you read in the comments. I don't always recommend reading comments because you get, get the wide gamut, but I do that for better or for worse. And in this one article called Too Risky to Wed in Your 20s, Not If You Avoid Cohabiting. If you read through the responses of people, you get this wide gamut of people who are like, oh, that makes sense too. This is like offensive. What are you talking about? Can you provide a counterpoint? Uh, why is the Wall Street Journal even publicizing something like this? You get both of those responses. But the only practice for the marriage covenant is being married. Because in marriage, we're saying, look, I don't know who I'm going to be in 30, 40, 50 years. But I commit to staying with you. I don't know how I'm going to change. I don't even know how you'll change over this time. I don't know what dreams we're going to accomplish together. I don't know what dreams will be crushed by life. But we commit to one another, for better or for worse in health and sickness, in the good and the bad and the ugly, on the mountaintops and the valleys. I will love, cherish, and be faithful to you. I'd rather die than break my covenant to you. And so in this sense, marriage isn't so much about trying to find the one. It's actually more about becoming the one who can sacrificially love 
another person for their life. Marriage is a covenant. The foundational text for marriage is Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24. This is God's intention, his design, and in Matthew 19, Jesus is tested by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They come to him, and they bring up this topic of divorce, and Jesus will refer back to Genesis 1 and 2. In verse 3 of Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus responds, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female? That's Genesis 1, verse 27. And then he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, 24. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus affirms several truths here about God's design. God has made us male and female as his image bearers. The creator made them male and female. And this binary doesn't deny the painful reality of gender dysphoria or require us to adopt really rigid gender stereotypes relative to time and place. But it does affirm that male and female are made in the image of God, equally worthy of love and care, and that sexual differentiation is a reality. Two, marriage between, is between a man and a woman, and it's God's design. Three, God's fa- uh, goal is faithfulness to one another in that union. What God joined together, let no one separate. You're to be one flesh physically, financially, emotionally, legally, physically. They are one. They're joined in such a way that no human being is meant to separate them. So think more like super glue and cement that has fully cured than a sticky note or masking tape. If any one of you have ever tried to use masking tape or even the green tape when you paint, you know how terrible that stuff is that's sticking when you're trying to paint a line. It doesn't work. That's not what marriage is supposed to be like. The unity and oneness is supposed to point to this unbreakable love of God for his people. And that brings us to this third point. The essential portrait for marriage is Christ in the church. Every wedding is supposed to be like a window to this divine romance that God has for his people. God as the husband, the people as his bride. And when talking about marriage, Paul in Ephesians 5.32 says, This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. Marriage is meant to point us towards this union that God has sought through Christ with his people. And Christ loved the church and gave up himself for her to make her holy and present her as radiant and blameless. Jesus has revealed the extent to which God loves us and is committed to us with this covenantal love. See, God covenants to be with his church for the church, unto their full redemption. And this is true as a people of God as it is for us as individuals. And now, as husbands and wives, we are to, in our marital love, reflect Christ's love. Our love is supposed to be defined by his love. So we're supposed to be marked by being with our spouse to be for them, and to be unto God's spiritual formation into their lives. And I would add one more, right? Be with them, for them, and unto God's spiritual formation in their lives. And the fourth one I'd say is 
because we know God is triune, he's revealed himself as a triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and these are three persons who mutually love and dwell in each other, always one in their intimacy. Our marital love must also reflect this mutual indwelling, this mutual intimacy. And this is why Jesus will pray in John 17, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our marital love must be marked by presence and advocacy and formation and this mutual intimacy. But the reality is, for all of us here, that we don't really do that all the time. That more often than we care to admit, we get it wrong. And see, that's what's amazing about this portrait that we get in Scripture of Christ and the church. Here's how Chris, my friend, put it. The story of Scripture from Genesis 3 onwards tells this tale of irreconcilable differences that should have ended in an eternal divorce. If ever there was a cause or a case for unbridgeable differences, it was between sinful people and a holy God. But our Maker did a miracle. He still made the marriage work. Irreconcilable differences can be mended by the gospel and bridged by the grace of God. They can be mended. How? Marriages have come back from huge breaches of trust, reconciled after years of separation, brought back from the uh, brink of divorce. How, though? Well, it's not possible if you're not willing to put to death your selfishness. It's not possible unless you're willing to give the grace you have received. It's not possible unless you're willing to forgive as you have been forgiven. And it's impossible unless you're willing to let God turn you into someone who reflects his character and goodness to one another. But if we do, if we do do these things, if we are willing to do this, our marriages will tell the story of God's unbreakable love for his bride. The way the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, which, if you don't know, it's just like a little Bible for kids with these great stories. When it talks about God's love, it kind of comes across in this overly descriptive, run-on sentence. And yet I think it perfectly captures the -the over-the-top nature of God's love. Here's how it says it. God's love is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forget, forever love. And when you're willing to let your love for your spouse be defined by the love of God, you get to reveal that love to them and to the world. And fourth, the essential perspective to maintain is that there is no marriage in heaven. Now, this sounds kind of foreign. Sounds kind of strange. Um, Chris, he'll put it like, in one sense of marriage, it's a promotion because it's a covenant. It's this commitment we make to one another. I'd rather die than break this covenant with you. And yet at the same time, marriage is not forever. Marriage is not eternal. There is no marriage in heaven. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 22. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven because marriage is a signpost. It's pointing to a union that will be fully consummated in heaven. There's no marriage because we will have arrived at the place that marriage has been pointing to. Here's how Christopher Yuan puts it. Marriage's true aim is to point people toward the ultimate and eternal reality of Christ and the church. Marriage is only a momentary shadow 
Christ and the church are the perfect and everlasting reality. And so here's what this means. Marriage will not satisfy you. Not completely, at least. And some of you are like, yeah, I get that, 100%. Pretty much from day one, hasn't. It's not supposed to completely satisfy you. It, because it's a momentary shadow. It's not forever. It's in heaven, at the resurrection, where we will be most fully satisfied, whole, content. Marriage can't be the ultimate thing because marriage cannot give us the meaning that only God is capable of giving. It can't give us the healing that only God can give. It cannot give us the joy that only God can give. Therefore, if you make your spouse the center of your life, your universe, your relationship will eventually collapse. Because that person will constantly disappoint you. They will never be able to live up to those expectations you have. And they'll always feel crushed. Because they can never fully satisfy you. Marriage matters then, but it is not everything. It is not the end. And in summation, let me just uh, read to you from Rachel uh, Gilson. She says, God created marriage as a symbol of how he loves the church. Human marriage is supposed to be for fa faithful for life because God is always faithful to his people as we should be to him. Human marriage is supposed to be the start of a new household because God's relationship with his people begins a new family. Human marriage is the only place for sexual activity and pleasure because God's relationship with his people is incredibly intimate. And if we have ears to hear, mar human marriage is, the, is only to be a male-female union because the gospel is a picture of two non-interchangeable and different parties made one by the work of Jesus Christ. Now, why have I gone through all of this? Why have I uh, perhaps even just shared things that you don't fully align with, maybe that you don't, uh, you're not sure about? What I want to do is try to give us the big picture of what the story of Scripture speaks about when it comes to marriage before we come to what Jesus is talking about. Otherwise, it kind of just coming into this little moment. And we need to get a bigger understanding. You can't understand his teaching on marriage and divorce without seeing the big picture of God's intent for marriage. Divorce was never God's original intent. Divorce grieves him, it pains him, he... He hates it, but you know what? So do couples. Who loves divorce? Who rejoices in it? Most people hate the things that lead to divorce. It's incredibly painful for a relationship to start in what feels like near heaven and then end in this place that feels like it's not very far from hell. It's devastating, it is heartbreaking, and it's difficult. It is ripping apart two lives that were once one. It's this violent dismembering of one flesh. And it doesn't just affect the couple. If they have kids, it affects the kids. And many of us in this room have lived through that because that was our parents, or that's been us. That was an aunt or an uncle. That was our sibling. We've lived through that pain. We know that pain. And yet, having said all of this, there are biblical grounds for divorce. And Jesus gives us an example here of what is meant to reinforce the value of marriage. When Jesus says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, he's referencing Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It gives grounds for the divorce if the husband finds some indecency in his wife, and it was intended to protect vulnerable women in those days. It allowed her to remarry. 
And women were able to get to divorce their husbands as well. But Jesus doesn't directly quote Deuteronomy 24. And the reason he doesn't is because he's referring to the common understanding of the passage at that time. He is highlighting the way people discussed divorce in such lax and permissive tones. The focus in Jesus' day had become about giving this certificate and whether or not a certificate of divorce had been given, not what were the grounds of divorce. And he's essentially saying, you have heard it said that if a man wants to divorce his wife, he must simply give her a certificate of divorce. Now, in Jesus' day, there was these two rabbinical schools. There was the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The school of Shammai interpreted this word in Deuteronomy 24 of indecency as uh, referring to adultery. But the school of Hillel interpreted indecency in a much broader way, including something as simple as the spouse having burned the husband's food. Sounds over the top, but that, that, that there were these two kind of schools of thought here in terms of how they interpreted indecency. Jesus, based on his response or teaching here, leans towards Shammai, saying that adultery was grounds for divorce. And this was as challenging then as it is now. And the trouble was that in Jesus' day, there was this culture of permissiveness around divorce. One scholar I read this week, he says, the impression one gains from ancient Jewish sources was that divorce was relatively easy. It was not considered a great misdeed. Jesus, though, prohibits permissiveness, and he states what is grounds for divorce. He says sexual immorality. He says, but I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so two questions come up because of this. What does Jesus mean when he says sexual immorality? Does it mean adultery? No. The Greek word that we get sexual immorality is this word porneia. The Greek word translated as adultery in our passage is moikohome. Adultery refers to just having sex with another spouse outside of uh, your own marriage covenant. Porneia, though, refers to something much broader. It refers to all kinds of sexual sin. And in our context, it's extreme sexual sin that breaks the marriage covenant. It's more expansive then than simply adultery. It includes it, but it isn't limited to that. Adultery may be a one-time thing, but porneia could be persistent. And Jesus is saying, Here's the logic. If there has been sexual immorality, extreme sexual sin that destroys the marriage covenant, there's grounds for divorce because the marriage covenant has been broken by that act. Therefore, the partner is free to remarry. If there's been no sexual immorality, there's no grounds for divorce because the marriage covenant has not been broken. The partner is not free to marry. That's what Jesus speaks here. But because of this, a second question arises. Is extreme sexual misconduct the only grounds for divorce in the New Testament? And the answer to that is no, it's not. Because Paul, when he writes his letter to the church in Corinth, he adds another grounds. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul affirms God's intention for marriage being a covenant for life, but he makes a, and he makes a strong statement against divorce and remarriage, but he adds a concession. 
In verse 15, he says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. If your spouse deserts you or abandons you, you are free to remarry. And it's not a command, Paul is saying, but you are free to live at peace. Now, in his book, Remarriage After Divorce in Today's Church, David Instone Brewer, who basically wrote his PhD on this topic, he outlines three views for uh, marriage and divorce. One view has been no remarriage after divorce. Second view has been remarriage for adultery or desertion. And the third view is remarriage for adultery, desertion, or abuse. Yeah. All three of these you probably will have heard if you've lit, grown up in the church. You probably would have heard different teachers land on different perspectives here. And probably pastors that you really love and respect too. I'm going to be honest, I, I, where I land, I land on the third. Remarriage for adultery, desertion, or abuse. And you may wonder why I hold to that, since there's no explicit New Testament passage that speaks to this. But I believe there's a theological basis for this. And uh, NT, uh, a New Testament scholar, Rick Watts, says, the scriptures assume divorce is reality. And all Jews accepted that it was legal. We just went through that as we unpacked some of these passages. They were only debated for its grounds. Everyone agreed that adultery and other similarly weighted uh, offenses, abuse, cruelty, humiliation, persistent refusal to provide requisite food or clothing, willful conjugal or emotional neglect, that's Exodus 21, were clear cause for divorce and required the punishment of the offending party. Now, why? Why? Because when you fail to be the husband or wife that covenant love demands, the covenant is being destroyed. Physical and emotional and psychological abuse are actions that destroy the covenant of marriage. That is not covenant love. That is not what a husband or a wife is called to do or called to be. Abuse destroys the shelter that one is supposed to have in their marriage. They're no longer safe. And this position is the only position that doesn't leave people trapped in dangerous uh, positions using Jesus' words to keep them there. This position is faithful, I believe, to the authority of Scripture and the character of God as revealed in Scripture. And this is how seriously God takes marriage, love, and divorce. He is not okay with abuse. And to be clear, when we talk about divorce, we're not talking just about differences in your personality or that you stop being attracted to them, you no longer feel the same way. Those are not biblical grounds. The call for those in this room who are married is to fight for your marriage, to not give up on it. God's orientation and inclination will be towards reconciliation. But we live in a broken world. And these three things are legitimate reasons for divorce. And if someone has to, they can live at peace with that decision. They are not to be shamed because that has happened to them. You see, marriage is a great revealer, just like having kids. It's a great revealer. Being around people in general is a great revealer of your selfishness, of your insecurity. And if instead of pursuing healing, you harden your heart, things quickly spiral in a relationship, and they can go dark 
For some people, divorce is going through a valley of the shadow of death before it ever is a new lease on life. There are people we know who have been divorced, and it was so painful for them. Because people seem to love the institution of marriage more than they love the person experiencing the complicated fallout of broken trust and promises. We cannot be that community here. We cannot be that kind of people here. We must hold together and imbalance righteousness and mercy. Not one or the other, but both. And this means that our mercy cannot be based on whether or not we agree with someone's choices. We will walk with them, weep with them. Easy life, easy relationships are not promised. That's not our way. This is hard. It's hard to speak about, to think about. It's hard to walk along someone. It's hard to live through it. And it often feels very isolating. We must be a people who walk and extend mercy while also being people who seek to be rightly related to God and others. Now, when I talk about this subject and I thought about it this week, one of the things that come to mind is um, grief. That because of divorce, whether ourselves or our parents or even our kids, there's this feeling of grief because there's a sense of loss. A couple weeks ago we talked about grief and mourning our losses. And Chris, he shared this uh, quote this moment in from the chronicles of narnia in uh, specifically the magician's nephew and uh, and there's this one character if you know the story his name is diggory his mother is dying he's desperate to find a fruit that could save his mother diggory is hoping that aslan the christ figure in the chronicles of narnia can give him something to heal his mom but Aslan has asked him to go and find the fruit and to bring it to him. And, and this is what Diggory says. Yes. He had had for a second some wild idea about saying, I'll help you if you promise to help about my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not that sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But when he thought of the great hopes he had, and how they were all dying away. A lump came in his throat and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Now up until then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt if the lion, as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Aslan said, my son, my son, I know grief is great. 
Grief is great. Marriages that have failed, families that have been divided, weekends and weeks split between different homes. This was life for some of you. Fighting to maintain peace, trying to love them, trying to be the good child in the midst of it, trying to be the strong mom or the strong dad. I know, he says, grief is great. See, the God we worship is not far and distant. He's bent near to you, and his eyes fill with tears. He's not far away and doesn't understand the types of things we go through, but he is gracious and compassionate. And you and I, we have this invitation at Cascades every week to come to him through communion. We have this invitation to come to the one who says, I know your grief. And tears are in his eyes as he said it. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to the one who says, I would rather die than break my covenant with you. See, when you go back to the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 15, this very covenant type of covenant is made. And Abraham and God were supposed to walk between the entrails, yet if you pay attention to the story, that's not what happens. God walks through it, but somehow Abraham falls asleep. God actually walks through it twice. And it is as if God is saying, I will be faithful to this covenant. I will be faithful to you. But by walking through it twice, he takes Abraham's place. And even if you break it, I will pay the consequences for it. See, I would rather die than break my covenant with you. And see, in communion, you and 